So we finally continue in our series in Exodus. And we are looking at today part two of the throwdown. We saw two weeks ago the nine plagues and the back and forth between Moses and Pharaoh, but ultimately between God and Pharaoh. Today, we see that our text opens up with God saying, yet one plague more. And afterward, then Pharaoh will let you go from here. So today we look at the final plague. Remember that as we are moving through this series, that the plagues show that Yahweh, God, is the one true living God and creator. The point of all these things that are happening is so that Yahweh, the one true living God, can show everyone, Egyptians and Israelites, that he truly is the one and only living God. And so we see Pharaoh and the Egyptians standing against God and his people as enemies. And we see the way that God deals with his enemies and how he protects his own. If we look in Exodus 2, as we have a quick refresher, we see that the cry of the Israelites came up to God. The prayers, the cries, the groaning, the sadness came up to God. And we see that God heard them. God remembered the covenant that he made. God saw and God knew. So we see this in comparison to all the other false gods who do not hear, who do not see, who do not remember, and who do not know, for they are not gods at all. But the one true God, when his people cry out, he knows them. As well, in Exodus 6, we see that God is showing his own people that he is God. Say, therefore, to people of Israel, I am the Lord. Likewise, we see in Exodus 7 that he is doing all this so that the Egyptians would know who God is. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. What is the purpose of all these plagues? Is so that everyone would know that he is the Lord. Through all the plagues, we see God, the creator, showing his power by decreating, we were talking about, but by, by uncreating. And the only one who can do such things is the, is the one who created it to begin with. And we see that God, through the plague, is, 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 is exercising his sovereign, controlled chaos in the very cosmos which he brought order once. That he is exercising his sovereignly controlled chaos so that everyone would know that he is God. So today, part two of the throwdown, we look at the last plague. And as we read the text, we see, if we're thinking about it in terms of events, we see that there was the final plague, we see that there is the Passover taking place, and as well now, dun dun dun, dun the Exodus. Right? You love that part in the movie and the story when they throw the title of it in there and you know, oh, that's why it's called the Exodus. So we've got to this point, this critical point, where we see the final plague, the Passover, and also the Exodus. But it would be more helpful, instead of thinking about it just in terms of events, if we go through today's text with a redemptive flow, meaning thinking about what is God doing to redeem his people. 
And so God is actually distinguishing. God is directing, and God is delivering. And so we'll look at our text today with three points. As God distinguishes, God directs, and God ultimately delivers. Now, let's take a look at Exodus 11 real quick. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. He says, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. Not only that, the firstborn of the cattle will die. But not a dog shall growl against. Not even a street dog will threaten or growl against the people of God, people of Israel. Either man or beast, no one will be opposed to the Israelites. So that we may know that God makes what? A distinction between Egypt and Israel, a distinction between his own and his enemies. God is making a distinction in this last plague. He is exercising his justice and his rule by making a distinction. Let me flesh it out for us a little more. He's exercising his judgment. We see that the firstborn is threatened now of the Egyptians, from Pharaoh, his firstborn son, to all the firstborn sons of even the slave girl. What is God doing? He's exercising his judgment. He's making a distinction. Yahweh, the one true living God, the creator of the universe, the God of light, the God of darkness, the God who brings order into chaos, is now exercising judgment on Pharaoh and his kingdom for enslaving his people and more so putting out a murderous decree to even kill the sons of Israel. God is distinguishing his own. If we look in Exodus 4, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God calls Israelites his son. God's making a distinction. Let my people, let my son go or I'm coming after yours. Let my people go, let my sons go, or we have a problem. And God makes a distinction. He makes a distinction and he now comes after the Israelites for the enslavement, the oppression, and even the way they tried to exercise murder on God's own people and his children. God is making a distinction. He is making a distinction by exercising his rule. And so when we look at the throne and the throne room, we see something really interesting here. Right? Yahweh, the one true living God, the creator of the universe, is now exercising judgment on Pharaoh and his kingdom for being a false god and a people who are false worshipers. In other words, God clears both his throne from false gods and he clears his throne room from any false worshipers. God is making a distinction. Why is God taking the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne? Because 
He is exercising his rule that no one should sit on the throne besides him. Why is God exercising his judgment on the firstborn of even the slave girl of the Egyptians? Because he is clearing out his throne room for true worshipers. When the firstborn of Pharaoh is taken, it's symbolic of the fact that Pharaoh, the false god of Egypt, will have no successor. That his son, who is to be king, who is to be the next Egyptian deity, will not be in existence. That this false god will not have a successor of more false gods. God is clearing his throne. He's saying, get up out of my chair saying, none will sit besides me. God is distinguishing his throne. When he takes the firstborn of all the sons of Egypt down to the slave girl, he is clearing now all those who worship false gods. He is distinguishing his throne room for true worshipers. As God says, indeed, I will not share or yield or give glory to any other. God distinguishes his glory. God distinguishes his throne. God distinguishes his throne room. God is getting rid of the false gods, and God is getting rid of false worshipers. And as God exercises sovereignly controlled chaos, He wants the Egyptians, the Israelites, you and I, to see that he is the one true living God, the creator, the sustainer, the one who distinguishes his own. So what are some implications here? Perhaps in your life right now you are experiencing a bit of chaos or disorder. Perhaps even in your own lives you feel an unsteadiness a chaoticness. And perhaps this is the Lord exercising his sovereignly controlled chaos so that you would know that you are not in control, so that you would humbly be reminded that God is God and that you are not. If you're experiencing this type of chaos, perhaps the Lord wants to distinguish that the God that you are worshiping is a false God. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us, if your life seems a disarray today, perhaps this is the Lord urging you to turn your eyes from your idols, from worshiping and hoping in false gods, and turning to him. Can you distinguish the true and living God from the false gods? Can you distinguish your heart of worship Is it given to a false God or is it given to the true God? God distinguishes. Second point, God directs. Pharaoh and the Egyptians must pay with their firstborn for their many sins. But what of the Israelites? Were they perfect people? No. But why were their sins overlooked? Why does the wrath of God pass over the people? Why does God distinguish his people? when his wrath comes over the land. We see that the answer lies in the Passover feast. In Exodus 12, 7, it says, Then they shall take some of the blood, which is the lamb, 
and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So God's distinction calls for an act of faith by the Israelites. They were to take a lamb without blemish, take its blood, put it on the doorpost as a faithful sign that says, I trust in the Lord. I belong to him. I am distinguished. I am set apart. He is my God, and I am his son. And they were to eat of this lamb as well during this Passover. This act of faith showed that they trusted God. God distinguishes, but at the same time, we are often called and challenged to trust in him, to act in faith, are we not? It's not simply just to hope and to pray and to say with our lips that we have faith in God, but we are called to act in faith, the faith that we have in God. God directs his people now. He distinguishes them and he directs them. He says, take a lamb without blemish. Take its blood to cover over your household doorpost and eat of it. In Exodus 12, the narrative continues. And God instructs him and he directs them this way. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. But the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God's wrath, the destroyer, we are told, passes over the distinguished one of God as they faithfully obey God's direction to sacrifice a lamb. God directs the Israelites on this way so that they may survive God's judgment and his justice, for which they are rightly due. The Israelite people, though they were God's people, were also deserving of his judgment. They were also sinful. Yet because God distinguishes and God directs them to the blood of the lamb, he passes over them. He passes over them. So to speak, the Lamb of God protects them in their household. But we know that as this wrath passes over them, that it is actually now directed to the one true Lamb of God, the true firstborn of God. We see the full picture of the Passover in the New Testament when we are told that Jesus, the Son of God, is the Lamb of God. John says this in 129, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We are being told here in the New Testament the fullness of what the Passover represented. That having faith in the Lamb of God and the blood of God to you and I now means that we look to Jesus Christ. Are we not Distinguished people of God who have been chosen to be a royal priesthood from the foundations of the world? Yes. But we are also now directed to have faith in the one true Lamb of God whose blood protects us from the wrath of God. The one true Lamb of God who actually received the wrath of God in our place. 
Brothers and sisters, this is a beautiful understanding of God's directing that the wrath is now passed over you and I as well because of Christ and directed onto him. The Egyptians had to give up their own firstborn son for justice to be met. In fact, the same is required of the Israelites, but because God distinguishes, God directs them ultimately to his own firstborn son. For the Egyptians give up their firstborn God gives up his own firstborn son so that his people will be saved. Brothers and sisters, some implications to really consider here is to turn to Christ. Today, God directs us, you and I right now, today, to look at the Lamb of God, the true firstborn of God, in faith that we may realize when we trust in this Lamb, the wrath of God has passed over us, that our sins are forgiven, that as distinguished people of God, we are now directed by his grace and not his wrath, that we are directed now to the promised land, that we are now directed to grace and goodness and joy. When we trust in his blood, we are forgiven. If you have never looked to Jesus in this way, if you've never been directed in this way to look at Jesus, brothers and sisters, friends, I urge you today that God is directing you to look to Jesus as the Lamb of God. If you have become a follower of Christ, but the mud of this world has directed your feet elsewhere for salvation, today God is redirecting you back to him. Now I want to touch upon one more implication before we move on to the last point. If we look in Exodus 12 here, Moses instructs the people that you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. Just as God directs you as his children, you must direct your children now to God. Fair warning here, I'm going to talk about parenting real quick. We are being told, parents, that we must teach our children, our sons and daughters, what it means when we trust in the Lamb of God. Now, in the Old Testament, it was different. But for us, as we know the Lamb of God is now Jesus Christ, we are being told that a parental biblical duty is to teach our children what we believe to instruct them. Brothers and sisters, if I'm just honest, the years I've spent as a youth pastor, the years I've spent in college and for a short time ministering to the college students here, a lot of what I have to do pastorally is parent them. And some of them are my age. A lot of what I find that I have to undo as a pastor is unbiblical parenting. Please, do not expect 
the youth pastors, the Bible study teachers, the children's volunteers to teach your children primarily. That is on you. When we take our vow at their baptism, we say we will assist you in raising your children in the faith. Do not expect that two hours at church is going to undo a week of hypocrisy in your house. Positively, fathers, teach your sons what your faith is. You know, I wish my dad and I had a sit down where he said, this is how I came to Jesus. This is my testimony. This is why our family goes to church. This is why it's so important for you to dress well to church. This is why it's so important for you to go to church. This is why it's so important for you to pray. This is why it's so important for you to read the Bible. Fathers, teach your sons. Instruct them. Instruct them in love. Right? The classic line, which I um, shamefully find comfort a lot in when my wife points out my hypocrisy, I say, yeah, but, you know, I'll just tell them, don't do as I do, do as I say. Right? And that's the easy way out. Fathers, as Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ, I urge you, can you instruct your sons? to be imitators of you as you imitate Christ. That takes time, that takes effort, that actually takes some thinking because it's difficult to explain to your sons certain things depending on what age they are. But take the time, fathers. Take the time. Mothers, the same. Take the time to unpack the beauties of the gospel with your daughters. Take the time to secure their identity, their body image in Christ. Take the time to show them that they're beautiful in Christ. Take the time to show them how beautiful it is to be a daughter of God. And take the time to model a genuine meekness, a genuine humility that shows a strength and, and, and dignity in a woman of God. Parents, we have to teach our children we have to teach our children why we believe in Jesus, but we have to teach them in a way where they see the joy that it brings to us. If we drag our feet to church every Sunday, to community groups, our children are going to pick up on that. Children will pick up on the smallest whiff of hypocrisy. <gasps> Mom and Dad, I heard that. <gasps> hey, you said I shouldn't say that. They pick up on the smallest whiff of hypocrisy. Parents, teach your children, instruct them on what we believe. Last point, God delivers. We see that God delivers them. God distinguishes his people, God directs his people, and now God delivers his people as we see the exodus take place. In Exodus 12, we're told that once the plague is set, Pharaoh and the whole land is broken. Pharaoh calls them and says, up, go out from among the people. After 430 years in Egypt, the same night that the final plague struck, the people of God were set free. God delivers. And so now the exodus of the people of God from Egypt is taking place, but more accurately, an exodus out of slavery and oppression to freedom as God delivers 
his people, the ones he's distinguished, the ones he's directed, are now being delivered from slavery and oppression to freedom. God delivers. God delivers his people. You know, two details of the narrative that I always thought that was really peculiar, really weird. First is this, how they were prepared, how the Israelites were dressed during the Passover meal, right? It's interesting. Take a look at this. Exodus 12, 11. This is some weird directions that God gives. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. The Lord is instructing them, eat fast and get ready. Be ready. I always thought that was such a weird, detailed account. What's going on? Mama always said, eat slow, chew, 40 times. What's going on there? It's, it's, it's bizarre. Second thing, that I always, the detail I always thought it was a bit strange was how they plundered the Egyptians. Right? Look at Exodus 12, 35 to 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they, they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. What is happening? What is happening? Right before God delivers his people, God directs them, get ready. Be prepared to be freed. Get your shoes on, get your belt on, get your staff, eat fast, because when I break the chains, the floodgates are opening and you're free. Prepare for freedom, he's saying. He directs them, I'm going to deliver you, get ready. Prepare for your chains to be broken. God is saying, expect to be freed. Brothers and sisters, expect to be freed. Expect God to break the chains of your slave masters. Some of you guys have been struggling with a particular sin for so long, you don't think those chains can break. God says, get ready. Prepare yourself. Because when those chains break, get out of Dodge. Get out of there. You're free. Are we prepared? Do we anticipate with that preparation to be liberated and freed from our slave masters and our sins? Be prepared. Secondly, weird. The Israelites ask the Egyptians for silver, gold, and fine clothing, and they give it to them. I mean, I mean, just, just picture it. Use your imagination, please. Can you imagine after 430 years of being in Egypt, the Israelites who were once slaves are leaving Egypt with silver, with gold, with fine linens? Can you see it? Any squinting eye would say, what is going on there? Scripture tells us there were about 600,000 men, not including women and children, leaving in the exodus of Egypt. They had silver, they had gold, they had fine clothing. Any squinting eye would say, they don't look like slaves. They look like princes of Egypt. What is happening? Not only is it a fulfillment of what God has promised to Moses at the burning bush, but it is telling us this. When God 
sets you free from your slave master, you actually plunder them and you leave with riches. Think about it. Why do we serve our idols? Why do we want money so much, financial security? Why do we, why do we hold on to our children's future so tightly? Are we, not, are we not enslaved by that? We had a great illustration a couple weeks ago about a child possessing Pokemon cards, and although he was the possessor, he was being possessed by it. Do we not feel this type of mastery over us when we hold on to and worship other things? But God is saying, when you're liberated, when you're freed, when you're delivered and the chains are broken, you actually plunder the slave masters that once mastered you. God is saying this, simply put, when you're freed from your sins, you walk out a prince. Brothers and sisters, why are we chained in the dungeon, surrounded by our own filth, bowing down to things that do not hear us, see us, remember us, or know us? Why are we down in the dungeons, chained in our own filth, hoping and praying that our futures would be okay as long as we have this? Why are we down in the dungeons in our own filth, begging and hoping that this world will give us something when it never will. God is saying, I will deliver you out of that dungeon. God is saying, I will break those chains, be prepared, and when you're delivered, realize this. When you leave the dungeon, you're leaving as a prince, as a princess, as royalty. How satisfying is that to hear that the God who distinguishes, the God who directs, is the God who delivers us into something better than, something better than we thought we could have. This is a profound, eye-opening reality that when God delivers, he delivers us to something better, that you plunder and you actually have victory over your slave masters in Jesus Christ. So let me conclude with this, brothers and sisters. As God distinguishes his own, will you look to Jesus in faith today as he directs us to him again? For it is through Jesus, the Lamb of God, who will deliver us from our slave masters of sin.